the Overmatch Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin, and with me today is Kevin McDonald. For those of you who don't know who Kevin McDonald is, Kevin was a sergeant in the Army Ranger Ring when I showed up as a young private, and Kevin's one of my mentors, and he's one of, uh, you know, Kevin, I, I, I remember you as the guy who didn't yell and scream that much, but when he did, by God, you knew shit was going down, right? <laughs> so... Kevin's had an amazing career, enlisted, officer in the Irish Army, been all over the Middle East, did some crazy shit. We're just going to walk down that road, Kevin, and talk about your experiences. So welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being here. Hi, Kev. Thanks for having me. It, it's, it's, um, it's been a while since, since we were um, back down in, in the, in, in the curl, but uh, I know, oh, right? it's, it's great. It's, it's great to catch <laughs> up again, absolutely. And you're on, uh, we're doing this on Zoom, so the, the audio is probably not perfect. I'm working on that, but you're in Sudan, right? I'm actually in South Sudan, South Sudan, which is the newest, the newest country in the world. Okay, real briefly, and we're gonna. What are you doing in Sudan right now? Okay, so um, the mission in, in in South Sudan was created after the civil war ended and there was peace. So essentially, like South Sudan is big. You know, it's about the size of France, and you can imagine what the size of Sudan in its totality was. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I, I, there's the a day. there's a common misconception about how freaking big Africa is, you know, and people just on that point. Yeah, on on that point, if I can jump, if I if I can jump in, mm-hmm. there there is a a guy called Tim Marshall who has written loads of books about geography, but he describes how big Africa really is. It's not what we see it on the the no. map because mm-hmm. like the the Mercator projection it's it's putting like a globe onto a flat screen. Mm-hmm. And Africa looks like Greenland or, or something like that. But I mean, you can fit all of Europe, all of America, all of China, the lot into Africa. Yeah, I know. It's and have some left over. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's yeah, insane. Yeah. I remember when uh, when I was working the uh, enforced modernization at the end of my career, and we were talking about because of the, the ambush in Mali and all that, and, and talking about drones, and we needed drones to cover. And I'm like... Do you fucking realize how big Africa is? It's humongous. Okay. Anyway, all right. So we're going to jump back, Kevin, get some context. And we're going to talk about growing up in Ireland and kind of some of the early influences in, in, in your life. And uh, okay. we briefly crossed paths in the Ranger Wing. I don't know if you remember me. I was a little angry guy. Oh, I do. I, I do. I do. <laughs> and then you went on to become an officer. And I love officers. I am well documented in loving officers. <laughs> I've noted your love of officers <laughs> in, in many podcasts. I, you know, I, I there's good and bad everywhere, right? And I, but I'd love to get your take on the officer corps because the way I look at it now in Ireland, because the way I look at it now, contextually, like with my whole career, it, it's got that class system much more than the U.S. Army does. And I have my problem with American officers too. But generally junior officers, you know, captains and lieutenants and stuff like that, I've never had a problem with. And you retired as a major, which is a commandant in, in the Irish Army, right? But it's a major. It's, 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 correct, a, yeah. it's an 04 yeah. in, in the American Army. So, <clears throat> so you went all the way from private to freaking commandant, right? A commandant would be above a company commander, right? It would be like an adjutant. No, type. no, a, a company commander. Um, it's a company so commander. When I went- okay. Yeah, when I went to Chad in 2010, I was a company commander of what, okay. 110 odd. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where did you grow up? Okay, so um, I was born in Castlebar uh, on, on, on the West Coast. And um, I, I suppose we were we were fortunate enough in the sense that there was a large military barracks, but it, it was, we'll say, for your listeners, like a, last, a National Guard barracks. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't a fully occupied regular barracks. 
Uh, and there was two, we'll say, National Guard units, two reserve mm. units. Like company, one of them was a cavalry like, unit. Like company level or battalion? Yeah, one, yeah, one, one it was the battalion headquarters of the 18th Infantry Battalion, which covered most of County Mayo. Uh, and the and other Mayo, Mayo's in the was, West Coast, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's one of the 32 counties. 90% in, in, of the people watching this are in the States. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 so I, I, will, I will jump in periodically. Sorry, go ahead. So, anyway, the, the other unit uh, was the 5th Cavalry Squadron. And, and as a young fellow, even when I was in national school, I could hear the gunfire in the barracks because there was a small range in, in, in the barracks. Uh, and I was enthralled in this particular cavalry unit, you know, they had motorbikes and armored cars and all sorts of stuff mm. so you're supposed to be 17 before you you can join the the reserve forces let's just say i was maybe a bit constructive with producing my birth cert that it was suitably adjusted mm-hmm. <laughs> to make sure i was old enough you probably but, weren't uh, the only one who I, did I, that I, right mm-hmm. yeah 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 so um anyway i i ended up having an army license for land rovers motorbikes and i think bedford trucks before i was legally old enough to drive mm. and by the time i was 17 i also i also had a license for um unimog armored cars leyland armored cars but it was great i loved it i mm. just this was the this was the only life for me it was did you, know, you have a great. military in your family no no uh, oh sorry um my my my, my uncle um toddy in in chicago joined the american army how many so brothers that, and sisters? That, that, that was back in the day. How many brothers and sisters do you have? So I've one one elder brother, he's a year older than me, Brendan, and and I have two sisters, Sandra and Linda, and they're mm-hmm. slightly younger than me. Okay. Usually a lot of times there there's like a family influence in, in when I joined the Irish Army, I had an uncle and he said to me, I was in the army. And I said, Really? He said, I was in the Salvation Army. I'd rather be laughed at than shot at. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's funny how that. I know, right? Yeah, it's funny how that drive to serve it kind of gets a hold of young men, especially women too, but mostly young men get that that drive to serve very early on, and it stays with you, you know. And I really feel sorry, and I've said this before. I feel sorry for I, I met a young man in Texas a couple of months ago, and he was a truck driver, and we we were chatting, and he was like, "Man, I I, I so." wanted to go into the military but i failed the physical because he had a medical condition uh from an accident when he was a kid and he wouldn't let him come in so he he's he, he had that drive to serve but wasn't able to fulfill it and there's almost nowhere else to go to get that you know what i mean to get that, that kind of fulfillment so he drives a truck now and listens to podcasts and he's probably listening to this right now but i i that 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 conversation with that young man really really stayed with me because i i can't imagine not being able to pursue my dream like that, and and me and you were both able to do that. So um, we were, and, and um, I, I like what you're touching on there, which is patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we both know, given given our our background, that's a very difficult topic to discuss in Ireland because mm. you know if, if you start discussing patriotism, suddenly you're entering into the realm of you know the IRA and all that kind of yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. and. I remember having a conversation years ago with with um, a Norwegian officer, and uh, he could speak quite openly about his love for his country and the fact that he's a patriot and and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to explain to him that you know in, in Ireland because of the subtleties, I mean one of, one of the terrorist organisations calls itself Ogilvy Hearn, which is 
the defenders of the Warriors of Ireland, which mm-hmm. which is the title yeah. of the Irish Defence Forces. Mm-hmm. So it, Ireland in particular, it's it's a difficult balancing act to be able to talk about patriotism. I mean, you both when we were mm-hmm. in, in the Irish Defence Forces, we we both fully bought into into it. Mm-hmm. But it, there is a slight difference between talking about patriotism in Ireland well, and, 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 and you guys in the States. Well, I remember being uh, in the 27th Infantry Battalion in Dundalk, and we would have, we'd be on a firing detail to do funerals for old IRA men from the 1920s and from the Easter Rising. And we different. would go out there in uniform and fire shots over the grave of IRA men. Do you remember that? Do you ever have to do that? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've done that as well. The difference being is they were fighting for Irish independence prior to us getting independence. Yes. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So the, yeah. I, I never had a difficulty with that because they, they were volunteers, patriots mm-hmm. trying to uh, fight for Irish. But once Ireland became a republic, we were independent. Yeah. Therefore, I that's yeah. where I had a problem. That's a whole... I take a point completely yeah. about, about patriotism. That's a rabbit hole, man, to go down. Okay, so... Young man, FCA. The FCA was. I tried to join the FCA as well, and like I have a picture of me in basic training when I was eighteen. I looked like I was twelve, and I tried to join the FCA when I was fifteen. I probably looked like I was nine. And the guy said, "Come back next week and bring your birth certificate." And of course, the jig was up. I wasn't as creative as you. I was like, "Well, I guess that's not happening, right?" But the FCA, very, very, uh, very underfunded, uh, old gear. I think it was dependent on where you were. Was the FCA unit you were in? Was it was it pretty good? Uh, it, it was, and, and because because it was a a, a cavalry unit, and the, the the notion of cavalry cavalry units is that every single trooper, no private troopers, had to be able to be a radio operator, mm. a car gunner, and a car driver. Well, did you have that uh, weird hat? Do you have that so, weird beret that uh, troopers had? No, we didn't have berets. We 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 no, had Glengarry's. Glengarry, that yeah, the weird looking hat with the thing on yeah, that that uh that was a trooper thing, yeah. Yeah, and and the the, the two black tails that, that come come down from yeah. the end of the Glengarry. I know you know exactly what they're for. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. So, so the, the the Glengarry is like a I think a seventeenth century British stroke Scottish concoction. Mm-hmm. And the idea of the two black tails that come down the back of it was that like back in the day all these guys had had ponytails and it was to tie the ponytail up i bet you know that see you learn something new every day there you go what does fca stand for force a cousin to archu which translates for 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 your listeners that's irish for local defense forces okay so it's not free clothes association like they used to say when you go in because you're going to get a uniform they they, they (laughs) did and and i I have to say i have to say there was many a household in ireland were quite glad of the big old bulls wool overcoats and and, and stuff like that were you when you're growing up back then were, were you guys fairly poor fairly not that you know it at the time, right? It's just the way things are. But looking back now, were, were you were you like middle class, or were you? What did your dad do? So my my dad, God rest him, was he was working for the the local county council. Uh, he was in charge of maintenance of you know the big heavy trucks and mm-hmm. all that that, that kind okay. of stuff. So he had a fairly good job. My, yeah, but but I I'll put it into context in a second. Um, my my mother, God rest her was working with the local county council but once she got married as a married woman she had to give up her job really um, you see th- this and, is and, I, I love i love 
looking back and hearing stories like that because Ireland was very old school back then. The Catholic Church oh, basically ran, ran everything. And it, it, very it's, it's very interesting for me to look back. And a lot of Irish Americans in, this, in the estates, they like stories like that. So a married woman was not allowed to be employed. Is that no, is that what you're not, saying? Not, not 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 by not it was like a state like she was a working for the civil service. Yeah. So and and you know I, I remember I, I did sorry I I did the leaving cert which is we'll say I'm, I'm not sure what the equivalent is in America but mm -hmm. it's it's it probably like, like honestly it's last, like an associate's degree yeah. It's it's the last before you go to universities mm -hmm. it's kind mm -hmm. of like and mm -hmm. you know um, I I did relatively well uh, mm -hmm. and I was only sixteen right. And I knew I had sufficient points to go to university. But first of all, I hadn't a clue what I wanted to do with my life in general, never mind education. Mm -hmm. uh, but secondly, I knew that there was no way we could afford to send me to university. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, like like this, I, I was born in 1960. So this would have been, I did the leave in search in 77. And I had finished my secondary education, had started work full time in a garage before I turned before I was six, yeah, before I turned 17. While I was still 16, I, I was already in, in full-time employment after having finished my education. Mm -hmm. And that was very that was very common then because the families needed Oh, the completely, yeah, 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 yeah. We completely, used to take, when I was completely. in secondary school, we used to take September off and go pick potatoes because my mom needed the money. 14 kids, man, she needed the, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, but it, it, it taught you a lot of good work ethic. It, it just did, right? It, uh, it, 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 it taught you the, A, the value of work mm -hmm. and B, the value of money. Yeah. And, and also the responsibility to to support the household that you're, mm -hmm. you're living in, which, yeah. which you know, th these are important skills to learn if you learn them early in your life. And both my parents, God rest them, they were very keen to make sure that they gave the best possible kind of upbringing so that yeah. we could you know be, be good people ourselves mm -hmm. yeah yeah you want you want the next generation to do so much better than you did right so you were in the fca part-time and then at what point did you transition into the regular army because it's not like in like the states right it's not where i want to go in the army if you walk past the recruiting station they'll drag you in and sign your name right for you, <laughs> you there's a process and they don't recruit that much because it's a very small there, military there, there is and I'll, I'll give you an idea how difficult the, the process was so eventually I, I had various jobs. I was working as a warranty assessor in the Ford dealership. I was working selling buckets for diggers. I was working in, in various jobs. I, I was an ambulance driver as well, um, which I, I, I really liked. It was a, mm. it was a bit, bit full on. It was, you know, the, the rush of adrenaline. Mm. And eventually I, I always, like, and I was mad keen. I was seven years in the FCA. And I said, right, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to apply. Mm. Now I was in, the western part of Ireland and what was known as in, in military terms the Western Command mm -hmm. and there was no recruitment there so one of my previous CEOs when I was in the FCA knew he, his friend was up in, in County Monaghan up on, on the border which was mm -hmm. part of the Eastern Command and they were re recruiting so he arranged for me to have an interview just to be a recruit yeah so I mm -hmm. drove up to Monaghan I was interviewed yeah it wasn't a done um, deal and it would because the job situation was so bad, they might recruit at thirty, and there might be three hundred people looking for those slots, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I remember at the time, um, it was like it was the battalion two I see and, and a few company commanders and the sergeant major were part of the interview process. And because the whole situation with Northern Ireland and and, and the border had kind of kicked off, maybe mm -hmm. 
Seven Rangers. What, what year are we talking about? Probably nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty-three. Okay. Yep. And the, the the three new battalions, your one, the twenty-seven battalion, mm-hmm. the twenty-eight battalion over in the west, and the twenty-nine battalion was kind of in the middle, and, mm-hmm. and they were just like recently formed, mm-hmm. and they had pulled people up from the south of Ireland, from Dublin. And of course, these guys wanted to go back to where they were living. So what, what they specifically wanted to do in the 29th Battalion, which was understandable, they wanted to recruit from the surrounding areas so that the, the guys would stay. Uh, yeah. So I had to give an undertaking that I would stay in the 29th Infantry Battalion minimum of three years before I'd look to go. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the only way I got out of the 29th Infantry Battalion applying for selection there you go range wing yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it was tough to go to selection Um, too because they used to block people going because they didn't want to lose all their best soldiers Uh, i remember i had a problem i had to kind of go around people to get permission to go and that had been a couple of years after you went but it wasn't like hey i want to go to selection and it's a done deal i think there was a little bit of freaking shenanigans going on there and and... there there was but certainly one one, i remember once I, i i was in the unit the chief of staff issued a directive that I remember that mm-hmm. every application has to actually get to OC mm. Army Ranger. Yes, I remember whether it's approved or not. But yeah, you know, a, a bit of a commander could say, I do not approve this, but he still had to send it. Yes, it. and in mm-hmm. fairness, OC Ranger, who was a combatant, could pull the guys in. Yeah, I think I was but a product yeah, the, the, of that. The, Mm-hmm. You, you, you probably were. Yeah. I, so, what what did you do in the uh, in the twenty nine battalion? You do border patrols and all that kind of stuff. That that same thing I did. All all that stuff. So, yeah. so when 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 I um, we, we trained in Manahan and then I was posted to support company, which was in in a place called Kushil. And this was unusual because the whole border thing had 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 kind of erupted. What the what the Irish Defence Forces did was they, they took over um, an old seminary, like a, a priest training college. Mm-hmm. And that became a military base. So every one of us had our own room with the little wash basin. Nice. Like on her That's of, awesome, you, yeah. Yeah. Coot Hill is but, very uh, close to the border, uh, right? Isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, yeah. It was kilometers. Yeah. Um, but a funny, a, a funny story about Coot Hill. Because it was in support company, I had to be qualified on the 81 millimeter mortar. So we were doing all these training and the drills. And before you fire live rounds, you fire inert rounds so it, it's like a, a, a dud bomb but you still put the the things on the top of the tail fins i forget oh, it's a long time i know a long time yeah but but anyway we there was a huge field in, in front of the uh, this old seminar and you know we would go through the drills and the bomb would go off and when it landed like it'd probably go maybe 300 feet and maybe 200 meters away but it it would go down maybe you know a foot into the ground in, into mm. the earth so if the two guns fired six rounds between the two of them, you might spend maybe an hour trying to find yeah. the dead earth bombs just to clean them and start again. Mm-hmm. So there was, um, there was at this at one stage, there was a guy on, um, I don't know if, if he had it in, in the American army, but in the Irish army, there was a thing called CB, confined to barracks for like minor infractions. Mm-hmm. So this guy had, I don't know, he was late for duty or something. And he was on CB, which means he can be tasked for anything. So the enterprise and NCO in charge of training us on the mortar sent for private blogs and he told them to stay underneath this oak, big oak tree in the field. So when the two guns had fired, he'd run out and he'd put a stick on each of the, of mm. the two holes, wherever they were. So yeah. that when we were finished, it'd be easy to find them. Mm. And this was going great. Uh, but then he got a bit brave. <laughs> Next thing, the two guns, the two mortars fired 
and he's out because he's confident in, in he knows where these things are mm-hmm. happening. So he's in the mid, middle of the field, and the next thing, the two mortars fire, and and he's kind of going, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that, that, that was, he didn't, but he, he would him, if he was hit, he, he would have been killed stone dead. Like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was my sole introduction to mortars. What was your, when you look back now with such a long career and so much experience, like when you look back where the 29th Battalion was back then, what would your assessment of it be? Would it be good given the resources, right? Underfunded. And I said this on a, on a previous podcast, and I think you, you put a comment on YouTube. Being under-resourced early on in your career, it teaches you how to be resourceful. If, if you're spoiled, yeah. and, and there's a lot of that goes on in, in the American Army, I'll be honest, but if you're spoiled at resources, you lose the ability to improvise. I remember when I was a team sergeant in 3rd Special Forces Group, and we had sequestration. The, the government shut down because the two parties were fighting. There was no funding. And I just went out to uh, Robin Sage, which is a training exercise for Special Forces. And I was like, hey, I'll come out. My team will come out. We're snipers. We'll do reconnaissance for you. We'll build packets. And, all. and it costs nothing. And it was some of the best training we ever did. But I, I think you lose that ability to improvise. But back then, it was a lot of improvisation, but you still got the job done. What, what, what having having worked with militaries all over, you know, in, all over the Middle East and Africa and, and European countries and all that kind of thing. When you look back now after a freaking forty-year career, what would you? What's your assessment of where the army was back then? That was um, a long-winded question. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think it was in a great place back then. I don't think that the country or the army realized the threat we faced mm-hmm. back then. There was two major gun-running operations to bring in weapons for the IRA. The, the Marie-Jeanne was one ship, the Claudia was another ship. I think we spent some time um, look, looking for those weapons, right? Because you were, you were we a diver, did, and, right? And, yeah. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. I, we'll I, get I, to I that. We'll get to that. Yeah, so underfunding, like take for instance, when, when I joined, there was no issue rain gear. Literally, the only people that got, um, and, and it was a, a heavy, heavy duty plastic top and bottom, were military police dispatch riders. Mm. The rest of the army, zero. You had a poncho. No, it's not like it's not like it rains. It's not like it rains much in Ireland anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if, mm. if you use your, your your poncho, you know, for a bivy when you're in in the woods, yeah. What do you want to use to, I know, to keep right? yourself yeah. somewhat dry? And it's funny, when, when, I, when I was down in, in the ARW, we heard that the Defence Forces were going to purchase individual rain gear kits mm-hmm. for everyone. So they thought the best people to test the, this out was obviously us. Mm-hmm. So over a selection course, we had, I don't know, maybe 20 different types of rain gear from top of the range, Berghouse, Low Alpine, down to Regatta, down to... Mm-hmm whatever you know so we, we tested from the cheapest to the most expensive and we came up and we were cognizant of the fact that money would be an issue so we picked something in in the middle and within i'd say four months which is rocket like warp speed <laughs> to use mm, a phrase that is warp speed understand yeah yeah we, we heard that yeah the, the army had and there was in in the car there was a recruit platoon in the third battalion and there was a a cadet class were going to be issued with these this new rain gear and we were like really looking forward to seeing how our inputs were incorporated mm-hmm. cheapest cheapest better oh so yeah 
I remember driving down through the camp and, and seeing this platoon of, of recruits and you could hear the, mm-hmm. of the, 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 the plastic. Yeah. And I was going, what, what happened there? Mm-hmm. And someone in, in the headquarters thought, there's a very good organization, or there was then, that specialized in, in helping people with, with difficulties get in employment. It was called rehab. And they had heard the army was trying to buy rain gear. So they, <laughs> they sent a sample of what they could produce. And what I was told afterwards is the private soldier, the clerk in the office that was going to purchase all this stuff, was told to put it on, up the hood, you know, zip up the hood, step into the shower, mm-hmm. wait for 10 minutes, step out, took it off, and he was dry. Wow. That's perfect. Yep. Bought. Yep. Like a trash bag. It's like we're in a trash bag. <laughs> yeah. You sweat you sweat from the inside. You get wetter than you would if you just didn't wear it from perspiration. You know, that's funny. When did you, and I think I probably know the answer because it's probably the same as me. When did you first become aware of the Army Ranger Wing? Ah, well, no, there's a story for you. Mm. Um. They, they, let me guess. They came to 20 Amp Battalion to do border operations. And no, you were, no, because no, 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 that's no, what it was with me. Okay. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> when, when I was in, in the FCA, in, in, in the reserves, the one of the COs we had went back and became the first CO when the Army Ranger was formed. He was the mm. first CO. So, should, so that, would, that would have been like very early 80s. Um, and one of the, the first things the unit did was they, they organized a range of instructors course so that, that people would be qualified to instruct on selection. Mm-hmm. And also at the time in, in the, we'll say in the brigades, mm-hmm. they had these basic courses. Uh, I had done one actually before I, I did the full selection course. Mm-hmm. So when I was in the reserve, we were tasked with playing the enemy for the ARW instructors course. And it was lucky, one of my, um, my English teacher was also a captain in the reserve. So a lot of us got a week off secondary school, you know, because we were helping the state. Mm-hmm. And the um, plan that was given to the instructors course was that in, in this remote area of Northwest County Mayo, which is still the most remote area in, in Ireland, there was a breakaway unit operating. And so they, we were we were sort of looking for them and they were looking for us for the best part of a week. And we had a, we didn't even know what a base camp was, but we had a sort of a temporary camp set up in the woods with all our vehicles and all that. And suddenly we were attacked. Oh, jeez. It was like, it was like war. Like we had heard about gun grenades. As, as a reserve, you would never have, have mm-hmm. access to them. Like these things were coming in. And I hid under a truck. And uh, so everyone, everyone was captured. And, and, you know, the usual thing, name, rank, army number, that was it, mm-hmm. and, and give no more. So I, I could see this going on. I was lying under the old man diesels. I don't know if you remember those. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Same, because th- there was an outer cordon of these rangers, and then there was the inner plate where they were trying to interrogate everyone and mm-hmm. get information. And I was trying to plan my escape. And the next thing, my two feet were pulled out from under the truck, <laughs> thrown into this 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 uh, stream. <laughs> yeah. What the f- blah 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 blah. Yeah. And I was told, I that that was just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going there. Yep. And ironically, yep. when, when I was on my own range instructors course, which was the fourth range instructors mm-hmm. course, we passed through the exact same area at night mm-hmm. going for a naval pickup off the coast. Mm-hmm. I was going, 
whoa, this is this is surreal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, a young reservist getting getting arrested and thrown, or getting interrogated in the stream. I know I'm back again, but I'm actually I'm, yeah. I'm in the unit. You know. Yeah. So you you went to selection in '85. Mm. Mm-hmm. How was how, how was selection? It taught me a few things. One of the points that that you mentioned at the, at the intro about my attitude as an instructor, I, I learned a lot from how people instruct. Now it, it, it was it was mad. I mean, the first mm. Sunday night was just. I think yeah. we started with fifty eight. There was mm. twelve gone the next day. We finished with eleven. Mm. Four weeks later, and ten were taken in. But I knew I was private. But I knew what worked and what didn't work. So eventually, when when I was in the unit, I, I would often instruct on maybe three or four selection courses a year. And I always felt that the guy that gets in your face and goes, blah, 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 blah. No. Mm-hmm. But the, the way to do things is maybe stand behind him and mm-hmm. should I be seeing this shit? Yeah. And that, that, that kind of, that adds to the whole plane. Because, you know, we, we, do, we do that plane with people's heads mm-hmm. during selection to see how, how they react. Yeah. But I always felt that, first of all, as an instructor, you need to be credible. You need the guys to buy into what, what you're saying mm-hmm. and know that you know your shit. But this bollocking, as we'd say in, in the Irish Defence Force, this roaring and shouting, people people zone out. And, and if, if that's all you can do, you know, mm. that's not that's not the way I operated. And, and I just wanted to kind of come back, recircle back mm. to, to the point that you made yeah. at, uh, at the start. I think young NCOs think that's how things are done. And, and maybe there's yeah. a time for that stuff, but... It, it, you're right. People zone it out. They tune it out and it just becomes white noise after a while. You don't pay any attention. But I, I, I don't know what we did in selection because you were an instructor in my selection course. But you were like, I know you probably, it was probably an act, but you were like pissed, like mad and screaming. And I was like, oh, fuck, that guy never screams. <laughs> we're fucked up now, right? <laughs> but there was, there was some really good NCO leadership in the range wing at that time. There was you, Gibble, Joe, Shamey Griffith, right? All these like guys—they're guys that I looked up to, and still, even with all the military experience, uh, they were very, very good leaders who struck a really good balance. Now there were shitbags in there. The yeah. the company sergeant was a fucking one of the most horrible fucking people I ever met in my life, and and got away with it. And that's one of the things I I yeah. hate. I really when I talk about officers, I'm like keeping a guy like that in line. The officer should have done something. And the sergeant major, who was kind of retired on active duty, really nice guy, but he wasn't really, uh, uh, you know, he was just kind of there. Somebody should have put that guy in his place, you know. And it, it fucking hurt me deeply. When I actually left the range wing because I bought myself out, and I want to make this about me, but and Porig Melvin was the same. They had us cleaning toilets and scraping up grass and, and for weeks. And it was like a punishment because how dare you leave, you know. And I talked to an officer a couple of years ago who you would know, but and I think he was the unit commander later on, and he was in my selection course, and uh, I think he might be a general now, but and I talked to him a couple of years ago, and he, he was like, it was horrible. It I was think horrible. I know who you're you, you do, you do know who. And he was like, looking back, it was a horrible culture, and there's no need for it, and it just put a sour t- taste in my mouth when I left, you know. Uh, but there was some really good NCO leadership, sergeants right and i would say and i don't remember exactly maybe half and half right half were really good and half were uh 
okay. And then, like, you were a diver and a boat handler, right? You drove that big-ass boat that used to take us out to the offshore rigs. That was some scary shit, man, because there was no... You know, they have cutaway body armor now that if you fall in the water, you can pull the handle and it all falls. We didn't have that. We had body armor, MP5... uh, sledgehammer, flashbags, ammo, and if you fell off that boat trying to get on a rig, you go to the bottom of the fucking ocean and you'll never be heard from again. So you better have some good upper body strength and you're climbing off that boat onto that ladder. That was some dangerous and, and they shit. They were all rusted. The, the rooms, yeah. they, they were all, yeah. some of them were falling away as we were yeah. climbing up. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I remember when we changed from the, the twin 50 horsepower Yamaha's to a, a single 120 Johnson and uh, we were down on summer camp mm. in in Le Hinge, mm. you know, which, which was supposed to. It, it was like a selection course because yeah, it was. You yeah, all these I know it was yeah, mandatory it was fun. Yeah, but the, the the CEO at the time he said he said to me, Mac, can we go up and see the cliffs of Moher? Now, for your audience, the cliffs of Moher, these mm. huge cliffs on the the western seaboard mm-hmm. of of Ireland. So we, myself and Joe, each had had a, a rib. I don't know, maybe eight people in each rib. Off we went. And we we literally bumped the prow of, of the sea riders off the these huge mm. dramatic cliffs. And then we decided we'd go back. And the sea the CEO had just come out from from some operation. So his knee was was sort of tender. And he was sitting behind me on on the on the straddle seat. And as we were coming back, I could see the the swell getting bigger and bigger. And as we we're getting closer to to Lynch, I was signaling to the other cocks. We need we need to get out. We're not we're not going to. And the next thing, his sea rider went up in the air, flipped all the guys th- thrown out. <laughs> and I went, okay, I'm not going to try and get out. I said, I'll I'll, I'll beach it. I'll I'll drive straight up onto the onto the, the, the shore. So the CEO is sitting behind me, and and his hands are kind of wrapped around my chest, and I'm gunning it for the shore because I didn't want to flip the boat. And the next thing, this huge wave collapsed on top of me, on top of us, and I thought we had flipped. Because there was that much water, but we hadn't. So I, I turned the sea rider around and I screamed at the lads to get onto the bow, run to the bow. So we went and we met the next wave and we went straight up mm-hmm. like vertical in the air. Mm-hmm. And I have a new 120 horsepower Johnson on, on the stern, mm-hmm. which was three weeks old. Mm-hmm. And as I was going up, I was saying, and as I'm coming down, and at this stage, like the CO is, is kind of vertical, holding mm-hmm. on to me. I said, I'm going to bury the engine into the because I thought it was in really shallow water mm. but it, it didn't like the, the sea rider flopped and of course the, the lads screaming hysterically because this was a big buzz mm-hmm. took the same the second wave the same way and then we we, we got out and uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the other <laughs> the other cocks he was he was getting horrific abuse from mm-hmm. the lads because you know mm-hmm. yourself the, mm-hmm. there was a, oh yeah there was yeah. a big pressure of it yeah um, was that Joe yeah, Joe I, Ryan I, I, was he the other guy that, that was Joe. That was Joe. Yeah, it was yeah. Joe. Well, he deserved it because he gave everybody else shit. You know, <laughs> I, I talked about going to airborne school, to jump school, in uh, Gormanstown on another podcast, and I was like, in hindsight, looking at that, there was the the uh, Irish Sea, right, and then there was the main Dublin to Belfast Highway, the main Dublin to Belfast Railway Line. There was Gormanstown base there, and there's a little triangular drop zone. And if you went anywhere, and, and static line, free fall's a little better, but the static line, you have no way to steer, really. And if you went anywhere but the drop zone, you were in trouble. And they used to have a boat out by out in the in the water. Yeah. And you, you probably pulled that yeah. duty. Um, I sitting did. out I there. Did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was that guy, yeah. 
I remember one of the guys that I went to would have been on, on and it might have been John Mull, but it would have been in selection with me and OTC or, or the skills course with me. And we were at jump school together and the spotter put him out, the jump master put him out of the bird and he landed in the ocean, right? And when you did that, they give you a toilet seat and put it over your head. Do you remember that? It was like a bum spot, right? And he came yeah, back yeah, yeah. in and he was soaking wet. And somebody said, they were talking about the jump master, said, did he miss the drop zone? And Mull said, missed the drop zone. He missed the whole fucking country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember on, 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 on my jump school, um, I, I think it was a it was either a two-week or a three-week course, I forget. Mm. But um, I, I was on, on leave. But because I had previously done a jump in England, well, you know, you pay for doing yeah. your jump. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that was, again, it was out of assessment, but you sat on, on, yeah. on and you the... Yeah, p- you pivot out. The yeah. And, yeah. Whereas, as, as you know, with the Cessna, you have to kind of step out and, yeah. and grab the rail. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, and... yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I arrived for the last week and I got my first four jumps before Thursday. And, and Friday was, was the wings ceremony. Mm-hmm. And uh, Friday morning, I had four jumps done. What to do to get the wings? And um, the winds picked up. So I, I forget who the jump, jump master was. But uh, he said to this guy, he said, what what's... Mac like when he when he's jumping. Well, he said it's either AOT or BOS. So like arse over tater ball of shit. I don't know if you can say that. You've been editing it out anyway. It's fine. No, um, it's fine. But 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 the, the, the crucial thing was he said, what's he like when he's landing? Oh, he's great. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I forget what the wind speed was, but I'm coming down. And like you said, I was watching the railway line. Mm-hmm. I was I was well in from the coast because the wind was coming from the sea. And uh, the next thing I thought, and, and you remember in the middle of the, the grass airfield, there was a tarmac yep. runway. That's where Willie said, landed and took I, his femur out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to hit the runway. So I, mm-hmm. I, I turned and then went with the wind again. Landed like in a complete, like a bag of cement. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was going on the ground. Yes, yes, I've got my wings. And the, <laughs> and the next to the shoot and I'm going down I'm going down the feet yeah, so I had to get up yeah. and run around but anyway, anyway I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, and they, I said, they didn't want it. you to pop the right I'm never going to darken the wings of parachuting again <laughs> yeah I, I, I've done hundreds of jumps and I freaking hated all of them but in, in airborne school in America there's two weeks of ground training and I always say look I went to airborne school in Ireland it was like two hours we, we pulled the parachute mm. out to see how it deploys we talked about if you land in water, do this. If you land in power lines, do this, blah, blah, blah. And then do some PLFs off that bench. All right, get in the fucking plane. Let's go. <laughs> and it was fine. It was enough. Anyway. Um, I mean, in Paris, it's, it's static line, you know. Yeah. And, it, and like, it, I, I know the guys now are, are I mean, they're, they're, they're super serious about the type of stuff they're doing. Yeah. Um, free fall stuff. But back, yeah. back, back then, it, it was, yeah, it, it, it's, um, no, I, 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 I was more into the, the diving, the boat handling, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that, kind of, uh, that kind I, of stuff. When I got there, they were like, what specialty do you want to do? And I was like, man, I'd been in uh, I'd been in Lebanon in 87, and we went to Cyprus, and we went diving in Cyprus, man, in the fucking med, and beautiful on the, like, warm visibility. visibility. So beautiful, <laughs> right? I was like, diving's awesome. I want to be a diver. So they took us out to Blessington Lake, as a, and fucking horrible, cold and fucking nasty, and dead cats in the it's water. Like and I was like, I'm not doing that. You can, you can see nothing. <laughs> no. I was like, I'll be a sniper. I don't want to do this. This sucks. Talk to me about, because you spent about five years in a range wing, right? before you went to be an yeah. officer? Yeah. Talk to me about things you learned there that stood with you to the rest of your career in, in the leadership kind of role. Because I, I know 
I spent 24 years in the American Army. There are things I learned there that I carried with me throughout. I just I talk about talk about things you learned as a leader that kind of held you held throughout your career as an officer and as all the stuff you did in the Middle East. Like that, there's certain things I learned there that stayed with me my whole career. And I think when you get a good start as a young man, then that that really sets you up for success later on in life. But the whether it's like dealing with people, dealing with freaking you know subordinates or, or officers above you, or or just general stuff for leadership, what what are, what are some of the things you you figure you learned there that you brought with you? That, that that's a very good question, and and I I think it's relevant, very relevant to today's society. I went in there as a private. Shortly after joining the army, I, actually within five years of me joining the army, I was a full sergeant in special forces, which can't happen now, um, mm. unfortunately. But um, I, I, I learned that you have to be credible, no matter what. You have to be credible, even if if you're given a lecture on something that you have no particular interest in. You have to you have to get the guys to know that I know what I'm talking about. I may not mm-hmm. be interested in it, but I know what I'm talking about. I went off when I was in the range wing. I I went off and I did um, a certificate in adventure education because I was I was really into big big into the mountaineering then. And I remember at one stage the, the CEO saying to me, he said, Mac, what what are the, what are the civvies like with navigation? And I said to him, Sir, civvy navigation in the hills is probably ninety percent better than the Irish Defence Forces, and it's probably forty percent better than this unit. Mm-hmm. And we were pretty I mean, good. Compared by yeah. army standards, we were actually quite good at navigating well, yeah. in the mountains, but, but, right? But, yeah. But, you remember, like back, like back in the day, we were using the, the, the half inch to one mile map. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we were going spot height to spot height to spot height. Mm-hmm. But but even using those maps, civilian mountaineering, they were going to kinks and contours. So I, I started bringing all this stuff back in 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 into the um, into the range wing in, in terms of navigation, and, and we did some pinpoint stuff along along the border, as you probably remember. Mm-hmm. But but then. Because I was a, a mountaineer, I, I was bringing in the latest techniques in mountaineering into instead of having a three point wheelie with three figure of eights coming into a big, mm-hmm. huge figure of eight that size. And then, you know, I, I just you know, set you, that you, up. I just set that up a couple of months ago on a course. I set up a rappel and I did that. I ran three, the big figure of eight. <laughs> and, hey, it works. It's not the most efficient, but it worked. Was the range wing well, open, it, 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 to, it, it, open to change at that point? Because oh, yeah. A, yeah. a lot of they were, and that's probably due to the commander, I assume. Because a lot of times people are not willing to change; they're, they're they yeah. think it's good and, enough. And and, and you, you you mentioned a certain individual that was definitely resistant to, mm-hmm. to change, of course. Um, but I, I I found that if you come in and you know we, we mentioned Joe earlier on, I remember him dispensing with the the rig for the MP5 and using uh, a bungee cord, mm-hmm. and suddenly like. The, the the ability to mm-hmm. have it tight to your chest and then away it yeah and that that's innovation as as you it start at, at the very start mm-hmm. if, if if you don't have much and you yep. start to innovate and he, I I said geez that's that's really thinking outside the box mm-hmm. and at the time we were given that I suppose freedom when when I was when I was a a corporal and when we got these new 120 engines on on the, the ribs I <laughs> in my naivety I, I said to the CEO he said, Matt, what's the best way to test these? I said, let's um, let's drive them to Liverpool across the Irish Sea. Mm-hmm. And he said, how are you going to navigate? Um, I said, we'll, we'll I'm going to head east. We'll, 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 follow, <laughs> we'll follow the Irish ferries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he said, Matt, do you not think um, it might be an issue with the Irish Army 
entering into someone else's territorial <laughs> borders. So in, in the end, we, yeah. what we did was we, we did the um, the length of the Shannon, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the longest mm-hmm. river in, in, yeah. in the United Kingdom and mm-hmm. Ireland, uh, yeah. in the British Isles. And ironically, sometime later, after I was commissioned, um, <laughs> there was three of us having this conversation, as you do over a few points, and we thought we'd raise money for the organization for ex-servicemen and women, mm-hmm. O&E. And I suggested that we should try and, based on my experience, we should try and arrange to get a few sea riders from the Navy, drive them at full speed, the navigable length of the River Shannon for, mm-hmm. for charity. Now, if you kind of thought a bit more logically, it'd be like asking if a, a, a number of Navy officers requested a tank mm-hmm. to drive the length yeah. of Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't make mm-hmm. much sense, but I, I was a qualified cox. Mm-hmm. On, on both so long story short we 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 did we we mm-hmm. spent we went down i think we'd a week in the navy because they, they had to make sure that we could actually mm-hmm. drive the ribs mm-hmm. and we set off one morning in a place called Battlebridge, which is in county leitrim it, it's literally the the most northerly navigable length of the shannon and off we went i think we did it in four hours or something like that but we oh, raised wow. a serious that's a long way for, yeah for, mm-hmm. for, uh, um, oh, uh, of of all the training you did in the range wing, what was the what was the the most beneficial thing you learned? Whether it was just unit training or uh, you know, and I've talked about this. Look, there's 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 pros and cons to everything, and and there's things the Irish Army did better than the American Army, I think. And then there's things that I would change, right? But when I went to the range wing, the first course I did, and I don't know if it's the same for you, was a methods of instruction course to teach you how to teach, right? Now that yeah. was not our mission. Like we were freaking assaulters, we were counter terrorists and all that, but that 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 was well, actually. We were also instructors, Kev. We were also instructors. Yeah, and it, you're right, and it was a great way to get over your fear of public speaking, to build confidence, and and I really thought that was a great way to start. It's funny because Green Berets in the American Army are teachers and trainers. We train people all over the world, but you don't go to an instructor course until you've been on a team for years, and you have to come back to SWIC to be an instructor. And I'm like, this should be at the end of the Q course. But anyway, that was one, that methods of instruction course. And the other one was we went to the naval base and we did a basic seaman's course, boat handling, knots, naval tournament, because we were special ops for the Navy as well. Coiling ropes. Yeah, all that stuff. And and I I did some phenomenal training in Ireland uh, that, that has... God, you know, it stayed with me for years and years and years. It's funny, uh, Kevin, because I was on a mission. I can't say it too much, but one of our missions were to take these offshore rigs on a certain country that it looked like the shit was going to break out for real. And we were on this base with a bunch of SEALs, and they were teaching us a class on retaking a rig and I was asking questions they couldn't answer. I actually think I knew more about it than they did because that's <laughs> one of the things we did really well. And we did a lot, right? Hijacked aircraft, retaking commercial aircraft, retaking the rigs. Yeah. Some of that, some of that's, and, and a lot of times we were, I mean, we, we, we had guys train with the French and train with the Dutch and stuff like that. But a lot of times we were figuring shit out ourselves as we went along. Yeah. And you talk about improvising, and you know this because you've been all over the world, but some of the most innovative people in the world are the poorest people in the world, right? You go to some of these countries, and I, I saw a guy in, I don't know where it was. It was in the Middle East somewhere, and they drove past me, and the front of the car was a motorcycle, and the back was a car. And they just, they took two broken vehicles and joined them together. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the, there's a photo online of, 
I think it's Afghanistan, and they're jump-starting a vehicle from one to the other, and they're using an AK-47, because they didn't have jumper cables. <laughs> but they're the most innovative people ever. You know, needs must, as, as they say, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and we certainly did that. Go, go, going back to your, your, your point about um, in, instruction. Yeah. So I, I, I take it that, that you guys, you know, you need a lot of experience in the field, and then you become an instructor. But yeah. as, as you know, back mm-hmm. in, in, in the range wing, we didn't mm-hmm. have that facility. Mm-hmm. Once you were in the unit, you yeah. were expected to, you were. to give a hand. And, and you were, in, in my experience, you were kind of, overseen by by a senior guy for your first mm-hmm. lecture whether it was map reading or whatever you, you were kind of helped and then suddenly you were on your own mm-hmm. but one of the things that i remember i actually remember from my time in, in in the fca but but also for this method of instruction course one of the things that the irish army took from the british we, t- we took most of the things from the british army because mm-hmm. we, we we sort of Started off in the British Army, if you, yeah. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We just but changed in, in the terms, name one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, kept, we, we kept a lot of the, the yeah. Country, but in terms of instruction, and I think the British Army were, was the first first army to realise that they had to have the ability for, at the time, uneducated people to instruct. Mm-hmm. So they they created. You probably remember a screed, and I still have it in my head. We'll say for for to teach the right turn at the halt taking you a stage further in your foot drill i am now going to teach you the right turn at the halt the reason this movement is taught is to teach a man or body men to perform the movement from the smart uniform and soldier economy you the squad on the exit you know it's it's still there yeah that's how good that system was that mm. it isn't and and once people that were shy or, or felt they couldn't talk in front of 20 recruits mm-hmm. they could fall back onto that Screed, yada 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 yada. I remember that from my basic training, Kevin. I remember the NCOs who were just—they were not drill sergeants. They were just NCOs who got detailed to recruits, and they would stand out there and they would say, "Continue to look this way, and I will demonstrate to you the right turn on the march." Right, and uh, but it makes so much sense. You you the squad on the execution of halt will will show yeah yeah yeah. So he can go through a script. And he doesn't have to um and ah and try to figure it out. He can just rattle it off. He, yeah, he doesn't have to feel self-conscious. And, yeah. and gradually, the, the experience of doing that allows him to extrapolate on, on, on different points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that, was, that was really, although I, I do remember when I was in, in, in the reserve, on, on my NCO's course in, in the reserve, and we were on the, the, main, the main square in Luna Valicia, which is the, the barracks in, in Galway. And there was a, a board of regular officers assessing us to be NCOs in, in, in the reserve. And this this guy was teaching, I think, the, the left turn at the halt. But whatever way he, he got it when he was explaining the, the turn, he was saying, he said, you will pivot on the heel of your left ball. <laughs> and of course, the whole yeah. exploded in, in laughter. Yeah, yeah. But back to, back to training. What, what do you think with the best training? That that, not the funnest training, but that that what's that stood to you throughout the rest of your career, or was it just a general experience thing? Because experience is the best teacher. It, it, it is, and and I'll give you an example. What 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 I really enjoyed was the ability to bring civilian experiences mm-hmm. in, in, in the in the mountaineering sphere. What mm-hmm. what it bring bring it in, into into the asset. 
And I, I remember I, I was running some navigation course in the hills and I, we, we were in this, this glacial valley. So just, just obviously three sides, mm-hmm. the edge and the two sides. And I, I was asking the, the, the class or the guys, okay, I, I said, right, think if, if you're, the weather closes in, the mist comes down and all you know is that you're in a valley and there's land, there's, there's, the land, land is rising on, on either side. I said, what can you do? Because you've got three stark options. Mm-hmm. We'll say north, east and west, possibly, or some, some combination of that. And they were going, well, you know, well, I said, if, if you go up that slope, there's crags on the far side and, you know, it could fall off and, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, and like, th- these were tough guys from the, from the range of it. Mm-hmm. And I said, can anyone think of, of a solution? I said, what, what have you got with you that can help you understand the problem and maybe find a way out? And again, well, I said, right, take out your compass. Put, take a, a compass bearing up that slope. Transfer it onto the map. And then that will tell you whether it's you're on the west side, the east side, or the north side. And to me, it was it was pure simple. But the lads thought I was a fucking genius. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was bringing in this mm-hmm. stuff from, from civilian mountaineering and civilian navigation because they, it was drilled into them, uh, into us. Mm-hmm. You know, you go spot height, spot height, spot height. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas I, I, I remember I, I inserted a team into an alleged um, training camp. I might, have, I, been, I might have been on that team. <laughs> you might have been on it, yeah. yeah I yeah. might have been, yeah. But I, I remember I, I, I used the combination of um, the, the really old six inch to one mile British maps of the mm-hmm. country to look at field boundaries. And I was using the half inch to one mile mm-hmm. map. And, and we, we got in this particular one. If it's the same one, not particularly happened. Something happened on another one. I, but... I, I, I remember. I know what you're talking about. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Let's not talk about but that. I, I remember, we'll, we'll say, our platoon did, did the first insertion. And then maybe, I don't know, sometime later, because those dates that people were, were aware that mm-hmm. some things might happen. So I remember leading the platoon out. And, gee, and I was looking at, at a photocopy of a black and white six inch to one mile map and st- I, I think i think it started to snow if i remember cut long story short i suddenly stepped on tarmac whoa brilliant mm. then we got back to the curra and of course everyone had their time off and the ceo brought me in and he goes mac you did very well with that navigation i said thanks sir and i'm looking at him he says you know what i'm going to say i said oh jesus no i had to bring the other platoon i had to go uh-huh. back in as the guy with the other platoon Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Victim of your own success. Uh, at what point did you say, I want to be an officer? Okay. That, that's, that's actually, <laughs> that's a very good question because mm-hmm. I, I spent five years in, in, in the unit mm-hmm. and a vacancy came up in the reserve unit that I'd been in, in my hometown, in the, in the fifth cast squadron. And I was kind of getting tired of, of, of living out of a bag. And I, I was getting really into the mountaineer and I was in the Alps mm-hmm. and the Himalayas and all that kind of stuff. And um, so I applied for a vacancy, uh, a training sergeant's vacancy in, in the PDF, in, in, in the regular army, mm-hmm. in, in this unit that I'd started off in, in the reserve. And I got it. And actually, the, the weekly allowance to be with the FCA was nearly the exact same as the weekly allowance we were getting in the Ranger. Yeah, that's a lot. It was a yeah, lot back yeah. then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was, I could be wrong. I can't remember. I can't remember, yeah. Yeah, but but then but then as as you know, we were buying our own Gore-Tex boots and Gore-Tex yeah. jackets and mm-hmm. all that stuff. We were, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I, I what was back. the atti- what was the attitude from the Ranger Wing when you want to leave? Positive, I have to okay. say. Okay, good for you. Yeah, it it, it, it was yeah, and and right, I, I'd been I'd been there five years, mm-hmm. but it, it was I I didn't feel any any pushback from the officers or the the, the, the senior NCOs. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't feel it at the time. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I think I was back. Oh, I don't know, maybe six months or maybe close to a year, and it was pretty mundane. Mm-hmm. Now I was living at large the weekends between playing rugby and and, and, mm-hmm. and rock climbing all over mm-hmm. the place. But but during the week, yeah, it was a bit. And what I didn't want to do was, was to go to an infantry battalion, where they say, "Oh, this is a guy. He's a sergeant from the range wing. He'll run all our, all our courses. He'll run this. Mm-hmm. He'll, like you'd be flat with work." So then I, I saw this routine order that um, they were going to conduct the seventh potential officers course. So this was going to be the, the seventh time. This was in 1992, early 92, I think. No, 91. And since the foundation of the state in 1921, they had ran six courses to qualify officers from the ranks. And all those six courses, the guys were like senior NCOs in administration or logistics. So they went into purely admin roles Mm -hmm. and specifically had had no, we'll say, operational commander troops. Mm The one, the one for the seventh one, for the one that that I did, um, we were going to come out as, as normal lieutenant platoon commanders, mm-hmm. whatever. So, th- yeah, I, I I didn't spend a lot of time in in, in Castlebar, probably a year. When when this came up, I wasn't saying, oh, geez, I really want to be an officer. I was mm-hmm. saying because I knew like my list of courses from the range wing were were, were huge, um, and I said. I, I, I sort of applied for it purely to test myself, to see how, how I fared with, with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Because if, if I, with, with all my skills and courses, if I wasn't kind of fucked there, there's something wrong with the system. Mm-hmm. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really hugely mad to become an officer, but I, I was more intrigued to see how mm-hmm. I'd fare in the whole process, mm-hmm. which was probably a bit vain on my part but you know yourself mm-hmm. you kind of yeah. you like to see how, how how you you measure up mm-hmm. to other people so i did and, and i was was commissioned and uh, I, I ended up second in the class how long was the training was it like it was different than it's, cadet training i assume it, yeah yeah because i i think what they do now and i i think they're probably at the ninth course maybe or the time i'm mm-hmm. not sure they're they kind of step into the, uh, cadet training i think is something like 24 months, mm-hmm. 21, 24 months. And they come in at, at the last part because okay. mm-hmm. essentially, I, I I think cadet training, it, it, it's kind of like recruit training, NCO training, mm-hmm. officer training. So mm-hmm. obviously a bit different, but mm-hmm. they, they and, and they're fully integrated. They, they get commissioned mm-hmm. the same day and, and all that, that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, we were, we were kind of different. It, it, it was it was interesting because the army was was trying to figure the situation out because mm-hmm. obviously there's a huge benefit in commissioning mm-hmm. hugely qualified NCOs mm-hmm. and I remember the we, we were told at the start of the course that uh, first of all we would be commissioned at a, a certain lieutenant's rank that would mean that we, we made money that, that we weren't kind of taking mm-hmm. a drop in wages mm-hmm. uh, and secondly very relevant to me that we would be afforded the opportunity to go to university so about three weeks before we were to be commissioned, the Department of Defence, no great lover of the Irish Defence Forces, decided that everyone would go across to the first point on the left-hand scale. Mm-hmm. So the corporals on the course were still making money, 
senior sergeants. No. Mm-hmm. So we and, and we were in limbo because we, we, we couldn't be officially recognized by the, the other ranks representative association or the officers representative association mm-hmm. because we, we, we fell in the middle. And eventually, I think three of us said, no, how could I accept a commission mm-hmm. and end up getting paid less than I'm getting paid at the moment? Mm-hmm. And look in front of, of my platoon and then knowing that I, I took a pay cut to be mm-hmm. in, in the sharp, shiny officer's pattern uniform. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in fairness to the, the, the officer that was in charge of RACO, which was the, the organization for officers, he was really good. And, and he, he spoke to me, he said, look, I can't officially represent you until you get a commission. But he did speak to the department and he said he will have a press conference with the three disgruntled sergeants who refused to take a commission mm-hmm. on the day of the commissioning of the rest of them and explain why that they what they were told so yeah yeah this um no I, I wasn't it wasn't the be all then i was i was prepared to walk mm-hmm. out yeah because i i felt we the the, the army wasn't on the department mm-hmm. of defense wasn't honoring what the army had told us mm-hmm. what was yeah when did you uh I, I, you, how many times did you go to Lebanon when you were enlisted? Just once. Once. I, then... I went, I, yeah, my, my first trip to, to Unifil in Lebanon was in, I, I think I was 11 months in the army. Just, I think just shy of a year. And that was 1984. Mm-hmm. So it was a winter trip, mm-hmm. 84 into 85. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm interested in, in when, in hindsight, looking back, because I have my own take on this. Did, did you, part of the training, were you, were you given any kind of, cultural awareness training or did you know the background of the conflict at, at any kind of level when you went out because my first trip i went out in 87 the first time and i remember a sergeant in lebanon explaining to me the whole background of what happened so it wasn't part that i remember it wasn't part of the training and there was no cultural awareness of dealing with muslims and all that kind of thing and there was there wasn't a lot of education on the back kind of the whole why of of why we're there right we were given a little bit but as I, maybe i'm misremembering it do you remember getting any kind of training like that oh okay so um i i do i i i think and and i was with the 56th battalion 56th mm-hmm. battalion which comprised of in in our i was a company which was the eastern brigade company so we had a company from the second battalion in dublin the fifth mm-hmm. battalion in dublin and a combination of the 27th and 29th battalions. Mm-hmm. So we were the border platoon, obviously looked down on by our counterparts mm-hmm. in Dublin because they were tougher and harder and, and yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, even to, to today, I read the whole time. I'm, I'm, I just read stuff, mm-hmm. especially when, when I'm interested in it. So I, I had read a bit as, as much as I could about mm-hmm. Lebanon. But my recollection is that we did get a fairly good brief and, and we did get this little booklet to use on checkpoints like, uh, mm-hmm. and I still remember some of it, if the sanduk, open your boot, mm-hmm. then fedlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, 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 there was, I, I, certainly for me, I, I felt about as prepared as you can be coming from mm-hmm. Ireland into the Middle East. But it, it's a funny thing. I, I went back to the Middle East as a, as a military observer in 2005, and then I ended up in Lebanon with my family in, in 2006. And the names I remembered from 1984 were still the key players. Mm. Nabi Bowie, mm. Shia, Wally Jumblat, Druze. Mm. The, the guys, they were still there. They were still mm-hmm. the big players politically mm-hmm. from 1984 
2006. Wow. Uh, and and they're yeah. still, they're still yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still, <laughs> yeah. So did did you? And I assume you went back as an officer then to Lebanon. Yeah, I, I yeah. went back. I went back in '93. I was there for um, Operation Accountability. This was this uh, seven-day war that mm-hmm. the Israelis un, un, unleashed mm-hmm. on, on, on Lebanon. But mm-hmm. it, it was a standoff. It, it was jets, helicopter, gunships, and artillery. I, I went back again in 1996 for the tail end of Operation Grapes Wrath, another similar one. And and then I was there with my family in in 2006 as an unarmed military observer when the big 34-day war kicked off what part of um, what part of lebanon were you in we up north or so no 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 down down in the yeah, south. south so mm-hmm. um so unifil is, is based in in the southern part of lebanon mm-hmm. and UNSO, which is the oldest u.n mission the, the united nations truth supervisory organization which has a mandate in israel lebanon syria jordan and egypt so we we had a team of 52 unarmed military officers that were positioned in, in four bases along the frontier between Lebanon and, and Israel. And I think we, we were very much a force multiplier for UNIFIL because we had our own uh, liaison assistants who had been in that area. And, and they were reflective of the, the team's area, whether it was mm-hmm. Sunni, Shia, Druze, Christian, whatever. And we could go anywhere and mm-hmm. we'd go in and talk to the locals. So so we, we I think we were very much a force multiplier. Mm-hmm. The war kicked off on the 12th of April, 2006. And um, our, our normal routine was we'd go to a patrol base with four other guys. You'd spend seven days there doing your patrolling, two guys out, two teams of two, one guy to man the base and do all the cooking and mm-hmm. record, all, all that stuff. And then you'd, you'd come down for a couple of days and then you'd go back up again. That, that was the, the routine. So I, I had previously been living in, in Tiberias in northern Israel. And we were working on the Akhele Golan Heights. That's the Sea of Galilee, um, right? In, the, in that type of area. Sea of Galilee, yeah. A beautiful place. Yeah. Beautiful place. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's funny when I'm, I'm, I'm digressing a wee bit now, mm-hmm. but, but pre COVID, when I was in, in the Central African Republic and we were on a six week RR cycle, first six weeks, I'd go home to Ireland. Mm-hmm. Next six weeks, I'd bring my wife Claire to Lebanon. Next mm-hmm. six weeks, home. Mm-hmm. Next six weeks, I'd bring Claire to Israel because we'd lived mm-hmm. in both countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I I have a huge love for both countries. Yeah, which yeah, it's probably odd for for. Mm-hmm. Well, it lets you see both sides too. Oh, 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 completely. Yeah. Yeah. How many how many deployments have you done? How many trips have you done? And and do you ever count them up? Think, like you spent a lot of yeah, time I, in in I, the Middle I, East. I, I was I was be, 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 before we we before we start this conversation, I was trying to make it up. I think with with the Irish military. I have about seven and a half years overseas service. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that, that covers Lebanon, Israel, Syria, Chad, Western Sahara, Mali. Yeah, I think that's mm. that's what the military. Uh, and as I said, once I retired, I spent, I retired in November 16. I started in the Central African Republic in, in January 17, initially as Chief Close Protection and then as Chief Security Operations. And I spent four years in the Central African Republic, and now I'm next door in in South Sudan. Damn! Wow. Uh, how's your family deal with that? Well, it, it, <laughs> are are you thank, done? Thank are you. you done? Tell me you're done. You're gonna go home and freaking go I, I, fishing. No, I, I, I'd be done. I, I I have to I have to retire for the second time when I'm 65, which will be just over two years. <laughs> no, thank thankfully. So when 
So be, because I, I came up through the ranks as a as a major, we'll say, if if I was to become a lieutenant colonel, it would involve like a year away from home in the military college and mm-hmm. and then I'd, I'd get an extra two years. So like a, a major retires at 56, lieutenant mm-hmm. colonel at 58. So I decided, we decided, myself and my wife, that the best option for my last two years in in the Irish Defence Forces was to try and get an observer mission like UNSO. Mm-hmm. So I, I effectively spent my last two years in uniform, one year in Lebanon, one year in Israel. Mm-hmm. Then I came back, retired, and I, I started with with, uh, with the UN. But we're, it, it's it, in the sense that uh, our two kids, are, one is still in university, Ellen. Mm-hmm. My son Ben is now working for AIB in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Um, when I joined with the UN as a civilian, we were the kids were at an age, and we were at a a, a time in our life that it worked putting two kids through university in Ireland at the same time well one in Scotland one in Ireland not exactly the the mm-hmm. um, you certainly wouldn't do it on on, on your pension mm-hmm. so it, it 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 worked for us and and thankfully it, it, it's great I don't think it's a great lifestyle choice for someone with a young family or mm-hmm. someone that's maybe trying to start a relationship because you know you could be all over the place yeah yeah I think I was in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. from from a family point of view. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And if it works for you, it works for you. What what's your what's your assessment? I'm going to put you on the spot here. A couple of questions. What's your assessment of UN and its function in the world right now? And obviously, it does a lot of good, but there's a lot of corruption and waste and all kinds of crap going on there too. But having worked for it in the military and worked for it as a civilian, what, what what's your? And I'm sure you met some freaking great people, and I'm sure you met some freaking bureaucrats. But as as an organization, for people who don't know a lot about the UN, kind of what's your assessment of it? Okay, and I'm 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 cognizant of the fact that maybe most of your viewers would have a particular view of of, of the UN. Maybe um, I mean they they probably don't know that much about it because I don't know that much about it. I know a little bit, and I freaking serve with the UN. But you know, I just want to get your opinion. It doesn't matter. I mean. Uh, just what you think? Okay, well, if, if if you look at if you look at the we'll say the foundations of the UN, so the UN sprang from the League of Nations, and the League of Nations was supposed to be this global organization that would prevent all wars. How did that work out? How did that work out? World War Two is, is is how it, it, it worked. It did. Out. It did. And, yep. Mm-hmm. And in in nineteen forty five, there was a conference in New York, and. Um, it, it it decided that obviously the League of Nations didn't work as it was supposed to. And I I, I think it would have been, would it have been Eisenhower? I forget. I, sh- I should know this. But Truman? Anyway, was it Truman? The, no, I don't think it was. Mm. Who, anyway, whoever the on. American mm-hmm. person was, who was, was chairing mm-hmm. this, this 1945 meeting, which was exploring ideas to have a global organization that would try and prevent the Second World War. Um, and one of one of the things that he said in his closing speech was, if this had if this like future organization had been in place, millions now dead would still be alive, and if we don't put it in place, millions now alive will die. Which I thought was a very succinct way of 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 people realizing that we need to have some mechanism mm-hmm. to try and and come in and and separate uh, warring factions and. And help the civilians, mm-hmm. and the UN hasn't evolved. Like so, when we when we were in Lebanon, we were in, in a peacekeeping mode, mm-hmm. which is essentially a lightly armored force 
in a situation with the agreement of the two opposing factions, mm-hmm. even though lots of Irish have been killed by the Israelis, have been killed by the Lebanese. Mm-hmm. But that that was the, the like lightly armed peacekeeping with the consent of, of both opposing parties. It's evolved now to, to peace enforcement. So we've we've had uh, Liberia in, in terms of the Irish involvement, Liberia, Chad, and then it's 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 evolved further. So actually, my 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 thesis, which I've just submitted, looks at because of the more robust nature of where the UN is putting people into, the mandate to put them there has more robust language. And what I was looking at was, are, are these mandates sufficient to enforce what the UN wants to do in a certain situation, whether it's the DRC, whether it's Mali, whether it's here in South Sudan, or CAR, whatever. Mm-hmm. And what what I've come to, to realise is, is that robust mandates are, are one thing, but, but if, if the TCCs, the troop contributing countries, don't have the political will, the experience, the equipment, the manpower and the will to enforce the robust nature of the mandates. But then the mandate isn't, isn't worth what it's written. Going, going back to, to, to the start, yes, the, the, there is a lot of problems with the UN, 100%. Everyone, I think, would, would agree with that. But does it work? I, I think it does. I, I, I think, well, like when we were in Lebanon as young guys, there was more, it, dis, despite everything that, that was going on, there was more stability in the areas, we'll say, that the Irish battalion controlled than other areas in Lebanon. It, it wasn't perfect. We, we couldn't stop Operation Accountability. We couldn't stop Graves Threat. We couldn't stop the shelling of a Fijian base, which killed 102 people in 1996. But definitely the locals would say that the areas that Unifil was in were safer, not fully safe, but safer than other places in Lebanon. And I, I, I've seen it in, in Central African Republic. Where I spent two years in a place called uh, Bria in Sector East, and we had 45,000 IDPs. ID, what's yeah. IDP? So, so the difference between an IDP is an internally displaced person. So okay. they haven't left the country, and they, not a refugee. They were there. Mm-hmm. So, so they're a refugee within their country, as opposed mm-hmm. to legging it to another country. And even though we couldn't fully protect them, they knew they were safer mm-hmm. in front of us. Well, well, they have, they have, they're less likely mm-hmm. to do atrocities if there's eyes watching them too in some of those countries, right? And yeah, I, like like Rwanda, the the reaction to Rwanda was very slow on the international community and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people died horrifically in that in that country. So I think the UN gets a lot of bad press. I, I think it does a lot of things in the background that people just take for granted and don't really know about. And and the failures get, get highlighted a lot more than the successes. But it, it's just the nature of it. it, it you know, Peacekeeping is a tough thing. And when you talk about peace enforcement, there's a very big, and you know this, but there's a very big danger of going down a slippery slope because if if something happens and you come in heavy-handed and the public start going against you that's almost like a no-win situation right if you're seen as the bad guy and, and a lot and the u.s military have done it in, in a lot of countries uh the brits did it in northern ireland you come in and, and you put soldiers on the ground that are heavy-handed and overreact to something happening because that's your job as a soldier you're a fighter right you're not a police officer you do run the risk of, of getting pulled into that slippery slope and if the, if the countries don't have the political will to back you up then the soldiers on the ground have got to deal with it and it used to be it, it drove me crazy and it was more so on the first trip to lebanon people before us were stopping nothing and then we got in there and our commander was like we're going to stop everything and this we started tibni bridge you're stopping hezbollah and freaking stopping them going and guys were risking their life and then later on they come down and give them passes to go through and it was just it, it, it was a frustrating thing for a soldier on the ground 
uh, to deal with. Yeah, and and, and so I, I I can I can back you up there by saying when when I was there in 1984, we stopped ever. Yeah, and mm. searched the, the roads, and and then I think I was back there in '93, and there, there was this like gradual erosion of enforcing the mandate. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll say when you're on about political will, when I mentioned political will, it was in, in the sense that some countries feel they have to revert back to their country before doing what they're obliged to do under the mandate, which is obviously way above our pay scales. In, in mm. that, that, that yeah, I saw that. I saw that in Kosovo when I was there. Uh, NATO was there, right? And we were in a Serbian village and we had a Russian squad. We, we sent a squad of American infantry. I was in the infantry at the time. To the Russian sector, and the Russians sent a squad with a, a BRT-60, and and they stayed with us for a week. They ate every piece of food we had, but they stayed with us for a week. And when they would stop Serbs, Russians have a big connection with Serbs. You know what I mean? When they would stop Serbs, they they, were, they treated them with kick clubs, right? When they stopped anybody else, Albanians or anything, they're very very aggressive. So they, they revert back to that. They're not like neutral completely. Yeah where you kind of have to be. Interesting. Let, let's talk about the Irish Army and where it's at right now because I, you know, it's funny because young men in Ireland will DM me, they'll, they'll send me a direct message and they'll say, hey, do you have any advice for going to selection? I'm like, dude, it was 30 years ago when I went to selection. I'm sure it's changed. I don't know. Don't quit. That's my advice. Don't quit. So I, I'd love to help you, but I'm totally outdated on that stuff. But just as general, and, and the, the the goal here is not to bash anybody, but generally looking at the Irish Defence Forces, which is not a huge army, and it doesn't need to be a huge army. You know, when we were in the army early on, it was purely internal security, and we went to Lebanon, we did a couple of things. I, I still know some guys in the Ranger Wing because I've shot sniper competitions with them here in the US, and, and I, I, I've kept in touch with them. But just as general as the army is... Is it in a good position now? It's obviously better equipped than than it was back in the day, but generally, where do you see it? Okay, I, 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 I'm going to start off with a, a depressing point. <laughs> there is no way that I could have advised my son or daughter to join the Irish Defence Force, an organisation I've given a lifetime, mm -hmm. 35 years service. Plus mm. seven in, in, in yeah, that's telling, um, right? You know, that's in any capacity, is, is, not even is. as officers and or no, no, any capacity. I, I, I can't. Why? I couldn't do it. Why? Right. So first of all, with the downsizing mm -hmm. of, of the army, you have private soldiers from North Donegal having to do guard duty on the eastern side of Dublin, like not even in McKee, in in Clancy Bar or Conabrew um, Bar, because they just don't you've have got, the they don't have the manpower. You've you've got soldiers from the first battalion in Galway that maybe live in Clifton, an hour and a half away, yeah. having to go to Cork to do duties. Mm -hmm. uh, and then then there's the whole issue of, of pay, and and it, I, I'm not going to bash any particular party or any government. Mm -hmm. This has gone on for decades, mm -hmm. but the the Irish Defence Forces have been underfunded under-resourced and undervalued for decades. And it, it was bad when me, me and you were, were, were there in the day. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, it's gotten worse. You, you've got a department that runs the defense force like, I don't know, like a, like a ledger book. The chief of staff doesn't have the, the, the full um, ability to control his own resources because he's reporting to the secretary of the Department of Defense. I don't know, like, I, I've, I've given my life to this organization. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm passionate about it, but I'm not passionate enough to think that this is an ideal career choice for, for my kids, What's which this? Is, is an awful thing for me to say. But but it's I'm being realistic. 
I mm-hmm. I had no, bed, I, I, I would never I'd still be there if if a convent retired at, at sixty five I'd still mm-hmm. be there mm-hmm. that's the point but no then pushing that to one side what's in the terms strength of Kevin yeah. what's the strength of the Irish Army right now roughly I think it's it's in the region of of eight thousand okay so that's it it but no that's eight thousand army it was ten thousand when I was there <laughs> so, Fairly, I, so, I, I think so it has less than it had back in when I was serving. And th- as I said, this is the, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. So we'll talk about the Air Force. We've got a, we can't control our airspace. If Russian planes come close to Ireland, the Royal Air Force scrambles tornadoes and whatever to intercept them. Mm. Over our airspace, half yeah. of the Navy ships are mothballed, even though we're buying another two from New Zealand. We can't control, like, we, we as a country, we have the biggest, uh, I think, sea boundaries. Mm-hmm. Of the EU, we can't control that. We you don't have do, the people. You don't do fishery and, and, protection. And the problem is, yeah, you know, like I mean, and and you you know with with, with the guys in the range one, it, it takes years to train an operator to, mm-hmm. to be at a certain level. Yeah, and if he feels he's he's getting screwed by being deployed here, there, and there, and no one is is kind of he's not getting just reward, mm-hmm. especially financially. Yeah, he'll walk with his feet. There's dozens of PMCs yeah. will. will as as you know, mm-hmm. these guys have been snapped up yeah. left, right, and centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, it it's it's a hard thing for me to say because I, I yeah. as I said, I've devoted my life to the army, but it, it's in a good place equipment wise. It's in a horrible place, personnel wise, in in terms of quality of life. Like be, before, when we had three brigades, you could happily have a career at any level up to left and colonel by staying say, in the west. You had at Lone, Galway, Finner, you know, you could jump between them all and maybe you had a 50 minute commute or something like that. Mm. But now, you know, if, if, if you're living in Galway and your job is in Dublin, that's not a daily commute. So you have to spend maybe a, with, as a combatant four days a week sharing a small, tiny room with another combatant in the barracks. Like, yeah, obviously, people are going to go, that's it. I'm out. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it's quality of you, life. You, you reach yeah. life. That, that's kind of shocking, honestly, because I thought it had taken leaps of bounds since back in, and I'm sure it has in some ways, but is it having a problem recruiting or does it want to keep those low numbers? I, I, I think the problem is twofold. There's probably a problem with, with recruiting because the potential recruits, whether it's cadets or ordinary recruits, they're looking at, at the, the, the salary scale and saying, do I really want this? There's also, I, I think there's another problem that's beginning to develop where people don't really want the hard life. And wh- whether you're a cadet or whether you're a recruit, you're going to have, you know, a few months of mm-hmm. people shouting in your ear and, you know, rolling through dirt and, and the usual stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's, there's probably a certain segment of, of this generation that think, well, I'll go into the army and I'll, I'll be, you know, in, in IT, I'll, I'll be like, mm-hmm. whatever. You still have to go through mm-hmm. basic training, whether mm-hmm. you're an officer or a recruit. Well, and there's a certain bit, bit of today's generation that maybe don't want to, to do that. Yeah. What's in it for a young person to sign up now and join as an enlisted soldier? I, I think there's a few things. I, I, I think we're in, in, in Ireland, I think we're getting to the stage that maybe we can talk about patriotism without it being mm-hmm. sullied by terrorism. And I think we're, we're getting to the place where being able to serve, to be proud to serve is, is much more acceptable but the problem is that everyone at, at every 
at every level is getting paid peanuts. I, I had a conversation that at, at one stage I was the, the brigade personal sort of um, in, in each in, in the Irish Army, you probably have something similar in, in the American Army, but in the Irish Army, we have in each barracks, there is an NCO whose full time job is sort of like a, as a social worker. Mm. So he can give advice on financial issues, mm. bereavement, diction, all these sort of he's things. A, he, that... he, he's always been there, but he was never qualified. He was the barrack room lawyer, we used to call him. You know what I mean? I know, they no, got... no, I know, no, <laughs> but this guy's qualified. <laughs> No, yeah. they, no, these these guys now have 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 the guys and girls have have degrees, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know they're they're affectionately known as the care bears. Mm. But they do a phenomenal, <laughs> yeah, it's they pretty do smart, phenomenal work. Anyway, at at one stage, I was put in charge of the brigade personnel support service, and everyone started laughing because you know I was ex special forces, like mm-hmm. I'm not exactly the mm-hmm. the huggy, yeah, kind of yeah. more than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I. I remember going to brief the the GOC general and I, I said to him, I said, sir, you need to realize that every single private corporal sergeant, lieutenant, captain who is married and has kids and his wife isn't working is on social services. That's mm. how bad things are in terms of mm. pay. Yeah. And and he he he, he was like that that was the fact. You know, if if you're whether you're a, a private or a captain, if you're receiving state subsidies. Because the organisation isn't paying you enough. What does that say about how how the country feels about your service? Will anything change? There's always been a, a strange attitude towards the military and the Irish government. Do you see anything changing? Would would, would joining NATO change that? You think, or is that even just so far beyond the the possibility? I, well, I don't know. Well, 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 to to um, I, I I like your question, but I think before we have the conversation about NATO. We need to be able to defend our own territorial integrity, which we can't. We can't defend our airspace. We can't defend our, our, our sea space. You could argue we can't even defend our, our, our landscape, our land space. So I'd park. I, I, I have no issue with, with us joining NATO. Mm-hmm. But we're not ready as, as a militarily. We're not ready to, to join NATO. Mm-hmm. And, and for this to happen, the brain drain in the Irish Defence Forces, in my opinion, is significant and it needs to be redressed. And it'll be only redressed if people are paid adequately, get get sufficient that that the organisation recognises that with, with different lifestyles, you know, I mean, people have to adjust to, we'll say, their partners' working habits and all that stuff. It, it, it can't just be that, like back in the day when when we were young guys in the army, traditionally the male was the breadwinner. He went out and did stuff, and the wife had the kids and stayed at home and minded the house. That was like the traditional Irish Catholic way of life. That that's all gone. And, and now, because of the cost of housing, people are living much further away from, let's say, Dublin or Athlone or Limerick or Cork or, or wherever. So there needs to be a, a mindset adjusted in, into how we expect our troops to live, work, and 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 work for the defence forces. I, I I don't think the Department of Defence has even considered that. Mm. I think is it even a conver- is it even a conversation um, like publicly? I, it, no, I, I, it's not, I, in, no. I'm I'm gone a while. Yeah. Um, so. Mm-hmm. But in the media, so just, I mean, in the media, based our conversation on the fact that I left in 2016. Yeah. And so I'm still obviously in contact with the people. Mm-hmm. But what, what I'm saying is an old guy who has left. I'm, I'm sure there, there is younger people at, at all ranks mm-hmm. 
that would have a different view of the of the mm, fence. That's okay. That's and, why and that's, that's why that's, it's that's called an opinion, way. Kevin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about some of the European countries you you worked with. Who 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 were you very impressed with? Well, traditionally in we'd say in Lebanon, we worked with the Nordic, mm. Finland, Sweden, Norway. Mm. Really great. One hundred percent. Really good. And and I I think our interaction with them in Unifil in the early days built up our abilities and capabilities mm-hmm. because these guys were really good. Mm. Um, good in, 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 the in, in respect that like professional, kind of flexible, capable, good good in what way? In, in my experience, very professional, very capable, very open, mm. very into exchanging of information and, 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 and all that mm. stuff. Easy to work um, with. I, I, I was always impressed with them. An interesting point, the, the first time that the Irish Army and the British Army deployed together was in Mali mm. under the uh, an EU training mission. So it was EUTM, European Union Training Mission, Mali. And that was, for me, an eye-opener. I, I was on the second, and it was it was amazing. We, we had a small contingent. We had, I think, two officers and six NCOs, mm-hmm. and I was in the headquarters. And, and they were part of a much larger British contingent, and they were all training a Malayan battalion, battalion group and it was, I have to say, my boss in the, in the headquarters was was um, a British Lieutenant Colonel. He was the he was the EXO, and um, we just hit it off, you know, despite our our history. A little more, and and, and but it, but no, I have to say, it, it was great that that mm. we both had moved away from that, and and we were we still are. Like, the, the, the Irish and the English are, are a little more similar than they'd care to admit. Very similar. Uh, yeah, yeah, like I worked in right. Somalia yeah, with some British guys, and and we we had a blast, right? And very very similar guys, right? Yeah, more so than they'd like to admit sometimes. But I, I'm glad all yeah, that. Yeah, and, and when, yeah, I have to say when the the main training area was about an hour north of the capital, Bamako. So myself and and, and this lieutenant colonel used to go up once a week and see how things mm-hmm. were going on. Yeah, see, and visit the, the men. Europeans. Used to visit the men. Are those my men? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're bringing up directly. I'm messing with you, yeah. But, um, but, but when when this base where they were training training the the Malayans was an old, huge officer training base, like dilapidated. But we went in all the different countries that European countries that that had unit had teams there. Mm-hmm. had their flags draped over the railings of their accommodation. And we went in and you could see the Union Jack and the Tricolor side by side. And I thought, we have moved on. We, yeah. have, we have moved on as a country. We've matured. It's mm-hmm. it's not brick bashing or anything like that. And they had as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, it did, I have to say, it, 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 was a, it was a great mission because all that colonial stuff had, mm-hmm. had, had, had yeah, kind of gone took away. a long time. So what's next for you? Once you're done with this mission, I, I don't know if I'm, done, I, I don't know if I'm done with it yet. Wow. Um, I have probably two and a half years left with, with the UN. Ideally, I'd, I'd like to go to a place that I could bring my wife to. I couldn't That'd bring her nice. to the Central That'd African be nice. Republic. South actually, Sudan, not really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. Um, so if if I could finish off for a year in in Israel or Lebanon, I I would love it because I I I, I have a passion for both of those countries. Mm. That'd be it. So we'll 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 see. Mm-hmm. But no more than yourself, Kev. You know, you can't stop. You, have you to, can't stop. I saw yeah. a great, I saw a great quote this morning, and it said it was something like, you know, your my goal in life is to die young, but delay it as long as possible. 
well, well funny, funny you mentioned that. I, I saw something on, on Facebook recently of, uh, it was like a, a cartoon image of this guy with long hair, ponytail and the beard, mm. skidding his Harley motorcycle, Harley Davidson motorcycle mm. up to the grave. That's the way. Yeah, to... absolutely, man. You got to keep going. Guys like me and you, I, I don't think we can just stop and go fishing. I, I think we'd lose our freaking mind. I, I well, think it's, it's big as, 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 as I said to someone recently, I, I said, um, when when I would say started my military career with the reserves at the age of 14 or something like that, yeah. I never thought, I never thought at the age of 62, I'd be running around Africa I know, with a Glock right? 19 and 45 rounds of ammunition. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's not a lot of firepower, but uh, your status is what keeps you safe hopefully right you're you're, yeah, you're not you're yeah. not and that's the thing about guys like yourself irish people generally for those conflicts they're there they can blend in a little better not that you're blending in but but you're not you were never a colonial power in africa right you're not that's, you know what i mean you don't have that baggage yeah but uh, but uh, I, i'll tell you uh, uh, another thing and, and i i started this when i was in in the central african republic there's, there's two main dialects zongo and Banda, both completely different. Mm -hmm. But in, in in the base I was in, we had local security guards would do the access control, you know, letting people in. You know. mm -hmm. And I would learn a bit of Zongo and a bit of Banda from them. Mm -hmm. So how are you in Zongo is Tonganaye. How are you in Banda is Ambrata. So I, I, I was was learning their two most important languages. Mm -hmm. But I was I was also teaching them Irish. Mm -hmm. So I had this routine that in the morning before I went to the office, I'd go to the main gate and I would address them in Tonganaye and Brata, but they had to reply to me in mm -hmm. Irish, in Gaelic. Tom Egamai, I am good. It was like a standing joke, but sometimes there'd be like local contractors coming in to do the plumbing or the like, whatever. And they'd see this white dude speaking their, not just the main dialect, but the second mm -hmm. dialect. And then they'd see their friends speaking a language they hadn't a fucking clue what it was. Yeah. And and it was, it was great. I, I became like a sort of a legend because I was teaching these people. Well, what Irish. you're doing, you're building rapport. Yeah, you're building rapport, but, right? That's but, what you're doing. Yeah, and it's yeah. super important. And, 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 but the bottom line is, like, and, and I used to say to people, I said, Why, right, we might be the UN, but we are guests in this mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. You should at least be able to say, hello, how are you, please, thank you, in yeah. their language. Mm -hmm. That's that's a mark of respect to them. A lot of times in the Middle East, too, having been there a bunch of times and trained armies out there, you have to... You have to embrace this, hey, we're all a team together, right? You don't talk down to them. You don't. This negative reinforcement that works in their armies doesn't work there. It's all about positive reinforcement of building up their, their, their confidence and, and, hey, we're all here together. And, and if you do it right, they'll fucking do anything for you. If you talk down to yeah. them and, and, and berate them, it just does not work in a lot of those countries. And, and that's no. it, part of the training in SF was that was hammered into us about building rapport, building rapport. You, you can't lose rapport because that's when horrible shit happens. But I, I think it's it's uh, it's kind of it's a very natural thing for Irish people because we're we're generally chatty anyway, right? And fairly friendly, most of us. So that that, <laughs> most, that of time, it, yeah. most of the time, yeah. Until uh, until you piss us off, I guess. So you're going to be there. Are you going to stay in South Sudan for another year or two years? Well, un un unless I yeah. get a get a job get in a, the Middle East, get a yeah. job in the Middle East, yeah. 
Man, well, let's stay in touch, man. I, I, I enjoyed the conversation. I love the Wayback Machine. And we could we could talk for hours. We really could. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it, we really could because we, we stomped a lot of the same ground back in the day. We certainly do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Climbed a lot of those mountains. Actually, I, actually now, now that you mention, I, I, I like you did, you did a podcast about the low alpine pack. I did. I did a video. Yeah, I did a video. I'm, and I still have that. When, yeah. Remember when 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 I I joined the SF and I was seeing the guys with the forget about the pack, but the belt. The belt, yeah, the low I, belt. I was yeah. going, like, this was an incredible piece of kit in it the eighties. Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it had a repel harness. Yeah, it had a repel. Yeah, this yeah. was just the most. In, now the, the problem was was the pack was yeah. quite big, and you know yourself. Yeah, yeah, a bigger pack you. You will, more stuff in. you will, you grow into your shell, right? You will fill that thing. But it was, it was, uh, it was way ahead of its time, that pack. And you'll see now, mm -hmm. look at modern mm -hmm. combat now and SF units, and they all have that big thick belt on with the pistol on it. Yeah. And that's what that was. But you, it attached yeah. to the pack and you dumped it. I thought it was very innovative. And we used to take the top from the pack, remember that? And yeah. we'd use it as yeah, a yeah. leg bag for repelling. So the rope yeah, would yeah. be dangling in front. <laughs> that's innovation right there. It's uh, it's so funny. Like when you look back at, and, and the range wing has come a long way, and they have some great guys. You know, a guy came here. I went back to Ireland in 2010 as a sniper instructor in special forces to an international sniper uh, course in the range wing. Right? It was weird. And there was a guy there, and he had a, an American girlfriend, and he was asking me how. I kind of ended up in the American military, right, and all that kind of thing. Well, he ended up getting married and getting out. He spent 10 years in the Irish Army, most of it in the Ranger Wing. Great guy. He came over here. He went through basic training. They made him a citizen right at the end of the basic training. He went to the uh, 18th Extra Corps, became a Special Forces medic, and speaks Arabic. He's a freaking 18 Delta, and he's in third group here, and the guy's a rock star, man. He's crushing it. Yeah. It's a great success story, right? Yeah. There, 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 there is a, a, another guy who joined SF slightly north of your location. Oh, well. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not that. Yeah, let's not let's not talk about that. We, All right, I, I let you go, Kevin. Let's uh, let's circle back again. And uh, there's a couple of other guys I want to I want to interview. I want. I'm trying to get Terry Downs on on the uh, on a Zoom. He, call he was on my selection course. Yeah. Was he? Yeah, I love Absolutely Terry. Absolutely yeah, amazing yeah. guy. And, and, and he, I bet he was. And, and going back to your point about how, how instructors shout or, or yeah. use, use their authority. Terry, I, I, I think, no, Terry was an NCO. I was a private mm. when we both were on mm -hmm. selection. I learned a lot from Terry. Yeah. How, how he could just use his stature and his poise and his voice without yada, 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 yada. Yeah. You know. Mm -hmm. He's very good. He's very good at getting the point across. He's a very articulate yeah. guy. He's very intelligent, a very oh, articulate guy. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I can't wait to chat with him because uh, you know we 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 broke out of the range wing together when we started the business and all that. You were gone at that time, I think. Yeah. But I did. I, I your, was gone. Yeah, I've yeah. seen your part. You're, you're, you're talking about a mountain leader. I went, I did a, a, a civilian mountain leader course up in the Mourne Mountains with Terry and I think Bill Halladin and Willie Rock and a bunch of us up there and did, did a course up there. A civilian course too, man. So many things. Um, me, me and Willie Rock were the first, I, I think, to summit Mont Blanc. Really? We, we did a yeah, yeah. But, but now, now that you mentioned, but sorry, Willie, I, I, Willie, I Willie, Willie was on my selection course. He's a machine. That guy is so fit. He's, he's a machine. Yeah, he yeah. he uh, had been at the parachute club the week before, 
and he was running his mouth telling people he was going to selection and Bill Haldon was an instructor. So the night we started selection, he pulled him out in front of everybody and said, you were out there, blah, 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 blah. And they said, for that, you will pay. So they give him the 240 machine gun, the Mag 58, right? Mm -hmm. And we were all carrying HK-33s, which are like six pounds, yeah. right? And he's carrying yeah. this 24-pound machine gun for the whole of selection. And we were doing rifle PT with the rifles. And he had the 240, the Mag 58, and he did every, and they couldn't break him. He's just a freaking machine, yeah. man. And, and they I, wouldn't actually, let him I, give it I up. Instructed, I instructed on Bill Hallidan's course as well. Did you? Yeah, 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 yeah. I wonder what happened to him. All right, Kevin, I'm going to let you go, man. This I, is a great conversation. Okay. I think we have to do another one, and we'll follow up, because we have a lot to talk about, and we skipped over a big portion. Yeah. And, and I'm really we interested did, yeah. in, in some of those You missed all the mountaineering and the archaeology. We did. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, but we've been at it a while. So let's do another one. And we'll pick of that course, up. Yeah, I, yeah. I really am interested in the mountaineering, uh, the gear, the training. Uh, I assume you did all freaking snow and ice and all that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I did a lot. Yeah. I did a lot of rock climbing, but not snow and ice. That's yeah, I, I, I actually hurts. led. I led the first and only yeah. defense forces expedition to the Himalayas, where four of us summited Island Peak. Wow, six thousand one hundred meters. You just wrote a book, right? Or you're in the process of writing yeah. a book? Uh, yeah, it's 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 with it's with the okay. It's, That's what we're gonna do, Kevin. When we when it gets published, and you have it in your hand, let's circle back and talk about the book and talk about the mountaineer and stuff and the archaeology stuff. And uh, I'm super interested in the history. I think when you when you when you get older, you get super freaking tied to history. <laughs> but let's do that. Let's circle back again and have another chat in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it was it was it was absolutely great to catch up. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's. I think you put a comment on my uh, one of my YouTube videos or something, and uh, I was like, "Oh, damn, Kevin McDonald, let's get a freaking let's get a let's get a, a podcast going." <laughs> one of my mentors, right? One of my. I, I tell you, like I said earlier, some of the NCOs in the range you, Gibbo, Joe Ryan, Jimmy Griffin, like guys like that, were, were such good leaders and such good mentors. And I think there's a lack of good mentors these days, and uh, it, it actually hurts my feelings a little bit not my feelings but I, I i'm i don't like hearing that the irish army is in a bad way because it it it, it is a it, a military organization like that gives young men a sense of purpose and women and without that to go to it it, it you know it, it's tough for them but maybe it'll yeah change. I, yeah I I, I I i take your point completely but but i think what 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 you're doing because I've, I've i've read some of the comments on on, on mm -hmm. some of your podcasts um, you're you're inspiring people as well. So if mm. if it, if even by people listening to our having a chat about yeah. what we did mm -hmm. back in the day, yeah. mm -hmm. may, maybe kind of gives hope or inspiration or guidance yeah. to people. Well, mm -hmm. you know that's mm -hmm. it's all for the good. And, and you know we we hit the we, high. We can only points. pass on our experience. Yeah, we hit the high points, Kevin. And hitting those high points, there was a lot of hard work. In between a lot of those things, there was a lot of struggle and hard work. Somebody said to me, how did you go from special forces in the Irish Army to special forces in the American Army? And I'm like, a black helicopter didn't come and pick me up. There was a 10-year gap. I spent six years in the infantry. I drove a freaking taxi. I contracted in Somalia for nearly a year. Like, I did a lot of shitty things between that, right? But it was a means to an end, and I had to start all over again. All right, we're, we're going to circle back once your book gets out, and we, we'll have another chat, and we will talk about the... Uh, archaeology stuff and uh mountaineer and stuff and a little more about serving in africa and, and the middle east because it's uh it's super interesting hey kevin i appreciate you coming on man thank you so much
Kev, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's, hey, it's, you're looking. It's, you're it's looking. You're looking good for sixty, dude. Sixty-two. Sixty-two. Dude. Clean living. Clean living, man. <laughs> no, I don't think. I don't think so. <laughs> All right, brother. I'll, I'll catch up to you later. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Take Bye. care. Take care. Bye. Mind yourself.